One of the first things I noticed about Yellowstone National Park was just the amount of waiting. It started as soon as we entered the park. This must be something big that's coming up because there's cars everywhere on their way to something or leaving or something. No matter what we're doing, the thing we can count on is we will be waiting. Waiting while driving because a herd of bison decided to cross the street. And let me tell you, bison weigh like 2,000 pounds. And they move like that. They look like they're from prehistoric times. It's like almost funny to see them next to a bunch of cars not giving a fuck. You look at them and wonder, didn't you die during the Ice Age? Sometimes they stop and take the biggest dump known to man. A Misha-sized poop. Anyway, I digress. Basically, they move like cows in slow-mo. And so you wait for them. And you wait for the geysers. The ones like Old Faithful that you know go off and blow steam at a particular time. And the less predictable ones like Jelly Geyser. You sit with your drink and your family and you wait. You wait in one part of the park when it unpredictably snows and all the roads close down. In my brain, I was like, oh, it's going to snow. It'll be like cute. You know, I didn't think it was like going to snow. And And you wait for things you didn't even know you were waiting for. This is Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios. I'm your host, Misha Youssef. This episode, we're in Yellowstone. Traditional land of the Azinaboyne and Sioux, Blackfeet, Cheyenne River Sioux, Coeur d'Alene, Comanche, Colville Reservation, Crow Creek Sioux, Eastern Shoshone, Flandreau Santee Sioux, Grovant and Assiniboine, Kiowa, Little Shell Chippewa, Lower Burl Sioux, Nez Perce, Northern Cheyenne, Oglala Sioux, Rosebud Sioux, Salish and Kootenai, Shoshone Bannock, Sisseton Wapiton, Spirit Lake, Standing Rock Sioux, Turtle Mountain Band of the Chippewa, Umatilla Reservation, and the Yankton Sioux. There's a wolf at the den. Um, oh, there is? Yep. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. So that is the den. Go ahead and take a look there. Oh, my gosh. So she's at the den. Oh, I see her. I see yeah. her. Yeah. Should be a black. Yeah, she's just kind of chilling. Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So that's her. If you can't tell from my reaction, it's my first time ever seeing a wolf. Mm-hmm. Do we so, know which one that is? Um, I thought it was just a black yearling, but I didn't get a great look. And if it sounds like Jeremy's not surprised, it's because he's not. So my name's Jeremy, uh, Jeremy Sundaraj. Jeremy spends um, a lot of his time out here in Lamar Valley and Sioux Creek on the northeast side of the park. Just hanging out with the wolves. And I'm a biological technician for the Yellowstone Wolf Project. My job in the park is basically research, education, management, and monitoring of the park's wolves, elk, and cougars. And how did you get into this? Uh, so I was like, I was always into animals when I was a little kid. I saw my first wolves uh, 
when I was 11 coming up here with my family. Uh, they killed two bear cubs right by the side of the road. And uh, I was kind of hooked after that. I started working up here uh, when I was 16 years old. Uh, just in a general We're standing in a parking lot looking out at a hillside. The wolves are about like a football field away, like super easy to miss. So whenever he sees a wolf, Jeremy lets me and Jonathan use a spotting scope to get a better look. It's sort of like a telescope, but like the fanciest kind. So if you guys look through here now, you'll actually be able to see the puppies. Oh my God. I'm obsessed. This one has like a cute little white like tail situation going on. Yeah, that's a pretty typical color for a younger wolf. Um, So they kind of turn that cocoa color in their first year and then we'll get darker. Yeah, you can take a look too for sure. Okay, okay. I kind of lied. They're not actually cute. I'm looking through this telescope, and the cub kind of looks like a dirty dog with a squirrel tail. Like, in a cool way. So she's a gray kind of in the middle of the frame. Yeah. It is really cool to see a wolf IRL. But not like lion cub adopted by a warthog and a meerkat cute, you know? You know, wolves range in color from, from gray to black. Um, the black actually came from interbreeding with domestic dogs thousands of years ago. Interestingly, wolves are also the only mammal in the world that prefer to breed with the opposite color. So that's interesting. They're like anti-racist. <laughs> yeah, so. Okay, that part is cute. Anyway, there are a lot of people obsessed with wolves, and they're like all standing around us. There are day trippers like me and Jonathan, of course. But there are also these hardcore wolf fans. But, you know, a lot of these people will come out for a, a long period of time, for a couple months. Rick here, um, he's in the jeans. Uh, and he had a long streak of, um, I don't know, Rick, how, long, how many years were you, did you, were you out here straight without missing a day? Ten? Longer than that? Fifteen. So, um, so. Yes, you heard that right. One of the people here, a guy named Rick, watched the wolves every day for 15 years. He was employed by the park at the time, but, like, still. Every single day. And even though he's retired, he keeps coming out. Um, This year, these guys have eight puppies, uh, five grays and three blacks. I never thought much about wolves before this trip. There were the stuff of fairy tales. You know, the big bad wolf and all that. But when Jonathan and I were Googling stuff to do in Yellowstone, wolf-watching kept popping up. Um, what we always talk about in Yellowstone is it's one of the few places in the world that people can actually come and see a wolf in the wild. But that hasn't always been the case. I'm 28 years old. When I was born, there was no wolf watching in Yellowstone. People, like all these people up here, all the wolf watchers talk about how, um, you know, they knew Yellowstone without wolves. And, for me, yeah, and that's because for almost 70 years, from the mid-1920s to the mid-1990s, there were no wolves in the park. The gray wolf, that's the type of wolf in Yellowstone, used to be all over North America. For thousands of years, their territory stretched from the Arctic to Mexico. Everything the light touches is our kingdom. But then... When European settlers first hit the shores of the New World, they didn't like large predators. Wolves are always viewed as as basically evil animals. So we went through great efforts to eliminate them. We were very successful. In 1926, people killed Yellowstone's last wolves by hunting them. And this was happening all over the continental U.S. We basically eliminated all of them, except for like two small populations. 
This completely threw Yellowstone's ecosystem for a loop. Things went out of whack. Without wolves, the number of elk exploded. This was a huge problem because these elk started grazing like crazy, overgrazing parts of the park. They were eating things like willows and aspens. And those willows and aspens, those are homes for songbirds and beavers. Without them, we started losing songbirds and beavers. I know, who would have thought that wolves and beavers need each other? So, environmentalists and scientists are like, hey guys, this is not good. Losing wolves in Yellowstone is really hurting the whole ecosystem. It's not just the animals and birds that are dying. The water levels are out of whack. In the 1970s, the government finally starts to listen and becomes more involved in protecting native species. The Endangered Species Act of 1973 is signed into law, and it mandates that species that have been eliminated need to be restored where it's possible. So yeah, 1995, the park made the controversial decision uh, to reintroduce wolves. Controversial because a lot of people were not into the idea of reintroducing a predator to Yellowstone. The ranchers said wolves would leave the park and kill off all of their cattle. And big game hunters were worried about competition from the wolves. Because, you know, wolves would hunt the same stuff hunters would want to hunt. But the government moves forward with a plan. Yellowstone National Park, after, you know, kind of a lot of drama, really, was able to bring in about 14 wolves from Canada. We kept them in pens for about 10 weeks to get them used to the place, let them go, and then they were, you know, free kind of to run around the park and survive as they would. We brought in 17 more in uh, 96, and then a lot of people don't know, we did put in an additional 10 uh, from Montana in 97, and that is our source population. And the wolves, they love Yellowstone. They have babies and take up space, spread out across the park. Yeah, immensely successful reintroduction. Like the most successful carnivore recovery program probably in the history of the planet. Uh, Below. Mm -hmm. So there's another wolf up here now too. Now it's in the grass, one side. Since their reintroduction to the park, the wolves have been continuously studied. There's a lot of evidence that they've reversed some of the damage to Yellowstone's ecosystem. Some, not all. Okay, yeah, so here's a black yearling. You can take a look through there now and see it walking around. Oh, yeah. A lot of biologists say that the environmental impact can never be fully reversed. We can never really make up for what we did. You know, park employees collect data on the wolves all the time. And Jeremy is one of those park employees keeping tabs on the wolves. But there are also tons of volunteers. Like, remember Rick, the guy who has a 15-year record of wolf watching? So Rick doesn't just watch them. He and other volunteers also help by submitting field observations to Yellowstone National Park. Like 907 wolf and 980 wolf spotted fighting over food. Which one is that, Jerry? It's a black yearling, so uh, one of the 18 pups that were born last year to this pack. All of this data means that Jeremy knows, like, a lot about what the wolves are up to. It's kind of like reality TV. People have documented these wolves' whole lives. Their quirks, 
their drama. And the public can access a lot of this stuff. You can see what a particular wolf is up to, if she's fallen in love, if she and her sister got in a fight. These wolves are like celebrities with their own fandoms. I feel like I have this soulful connection with her because I have watched her for so long. Taylor Bland is talking about her favorite wolf. Yes, my girl 1229F. I've been watching her since she was, you know, a couple months old. She's a two-year-old black female, long and lanky, super pointy ears, super bright yellow eyes. She's kind of ugly, actually, if you really look at her. She's super spunky and charismatic. She's the type of wolf that if there's a bison laying on the ground, she has no business going over to it, but she will, and she will bite its butt for no reason, just to cause trouble. She's just super fun to watch. I remember the first time I saw her. Parents were feeding and the adults were lounging. The puppies were enjoying their time on the river. They have the attention span of a squirrel, so... You know, they see a salamander, they want to play with it. Or, you know, they're hopping all over each other, biting each other's legs and pulling each other's tails. I'm actually in the process of getting a tattoo of her. Yeah, we're soulmates. (laughs) Taylor volunteers with the Yellowstone Wolf Project, and she works as a guide on wolf-watching tours. But loving the wolves also means having to watch them get hurt. There was this one wolf, for example. She was super famous, born in 2006, and she was given the nickname O6. Normally wolves hunt in packs, but the O6 wolf, she was the kind of wolf who could hunt a bison or deer all on her own. She would do this really unusual thing and go straight for another animal's neck and bring them down in basically one go. So, being the badass she was, she had a lot of fans. And her daughter did, too. For six years, Osix lived in Yellowstone. But in December 2012, a hunter shot and killed her. Her daughter was also killed by a hunter. People all over the world mourned them. They were heartbroken. Harming wolves within park boundaries is illegal, but outside, states make their own rules. And that means that some level of hunting and extermination is allowed, which makes Taylor really nervous for her wolf soulmate. There is no fence around Yellowstone, right? And so when she leaves the park, if she leaves the park, you know, it's almost certainly a death sentence. So I do fear for her in that sense, for sure. about it. This is 907. Okay. So. Oh my god, I gotta see 907. Yeah. Oh my god. So she's a kind of an older gray wolf. Oh yeah, she's like all white. Yeah. Standing in the parking lot with Jeremy and Jonathan, watching wolves come and go from their den, I start thinking about what I've learned so far on this trip. Our history, the park's history, the country's history, how we've eliminated animals like wolves how it rippled out and destroyed the whole ecosystem, how we've tried to repent and make amends. 
how we've waited to see if it worked. Did it work? If it's never been quite the same? I try to make sense of all of it. The wolf do-over. I can't put it into words just yet, but it sticks with me for the rest of the day. The roads are super icy. Great. It's really windy and icy. After wolf watching, Jonathan and I decide to leave the park for a bit. Or we try to. It turns out all the exits are closed because of a snowstorm. I can't believe it's 30 degrees in May. We're basically trapped. So we decide to check out Mammoth Hot Springs. I'm doing this walk in flip-flops. <laughs> For the record, I would like to point out that where I live in LA, flip-flops in May are totally weather appropriate. Anyway, we start walking down this path. I'm trying to appreciate nature. Look at these trees. But if I'm being honest, it's so cold that all I can think about is finding a warm hotel and doing some yoga. Yes, I am very LA. Still, we keep walking. And then... Wow, look at that pool. It's like a, it's like a pool that has like bubbles and like smoke coming up. It looks like it's a set design, like it doesn't look real. Like there's like these white old dead trees, the same color as the ground. And then there's this like orangish mud close to the geyser. It's so pretty. So first it starts out with water, maybe coming down as rain on the surface. And slowly that water then enters the ground and makes its way down pretty deep into the crust. And that's where it encounters the heat from the magma below. And finally, that water gets hotter, it becomes less dense, so it starts rising. And then it rises up through all these fractures in the rock. It dissolves silica and some other elements and molecules from the rocks. And then it comes up towards the surface. Typically, you're going to use the term hot spring for something that actually has a pool at the surface and is not an erupting feature. A geyser would be used for any thermal feature that could erupt. Jet geyser. This little guy to our left is a jet geyser. It's like volcanoes coming out from under the ground with bluish green, gorgeous water. Yeah, so the spectrum of colors usually actually has to do with what type of life is living there. So the really blue springs are the hottest, then you get springs that are kind of yellow and orange and red, and that means the temperature is a little bit lower and that is supporting more of those organisms. You know, I think I've seen almost every color in Yellowstone thermal area, probably 
Maybe purple is the one that would be hard to come by. My name is Mara Reed. I am studying geysers and hydrothermal systems broadly defined. This one's particularly weird. It's like pink sand dunes surrounding a bubbling geyser where like bubbles are going in like odd patterns and rhythms. Other than the water that you can see, there's a lot of different sounds. And I think that's actually my favorite part about geysers is that they can just make so many sounds. And you say, well, how? I mean, it's just water. Well, you've got trickling of water down a runoff channel. You have little spurts and gurgles and splashes. You have these powerful geysers that reach great heights. They sound like roaring jet engines. And my personal favorite, there are some geysers that have little pools and sometimes they'll drain very suddenly. And it just sounds like a toilet flushing. It smells so gross. Yeah, it smells like eggs. My favorite smell is rotten eggs because that's what some of the, especially acidic areas in Yellowstone smell like because they've got hydrogen sulfide gas being emitted. You know, it's like Stockholm Syndrome for smells. You spend so much time around it. You're like, oh, you know, actually this is okay. I like this. Is this good for your skin, do you know? <laughs> I hope so. These gases or whatever's coming out. Are they, do you know? Are they what? Are they good for your skin? It's mostly carbon dioxide and steam, so water. There are some smaller proportions of hydrogen sulfide that gets you that rotten egg smell. There's some helium gas and some other gases as well. But primarily there is no health risk to humans or and it doesn't really have any effects on your breathing or your skin. Danger. Everywhere it says danger, danger, keep out. Okay, we're keeping out. You would have a bad time if you tried to go inside a geyser, mostly because, you know, this temperature, the water, when it's erupting, it's at the boiling temperature. I love the earth. It's so cool because it's like, you realize like, oh yeah, this is all like a process of like creation because it's like so active, you know? Geysers can go dormant or extinct and sometimes just due to natural causes like landslides or just kind of the natural life cycle of geysers, but humans can also alter and end a geyser's eruptions. A lot of geysers in Yellowstone that went extinct because of humans, it's because people kept throwing trash and just random stuff in there. Wow. I keep reading signs that explain that Yellowstone National Park is one of the world's largest active volcanic systems. All that steam and boiling water, that's a result of the ginormous magma chamber beneath our feet. And not to get all symbolic, but it's a bit symbolic, no? I mean, I've been learning about the national parks and their histories, about how they're not just America's best idea, that they have ugly pasts. And I don't just mean the wolves. 
You know, I was having a hard time putting it into words earlier. But the government, the National Park Service, and all these American citizens realized that we messed up in getting rid of the wolves. When we killed them, we didn't kill them in isolation. It affected other plants and animals and streams. It inadvertently affected us. And when we understood that, we, Americans and our government, tried to fix our mistake. We had to wait for it. It took like 70 years. And even then, it wasn't a super popular decision. But we did it. We did it because it was the right thing to do. Because if we didn't, it wouldn't just go away. The mistakes of our past, how we treated wolves and our environment, would keep bubbling up in different ways. And it would keep affecting us. Our ability to survive and live happy, healthy lives. The thing is that our past is still bubbling up. It's like we're literally on top of an active volcano. And the painful history will not just go away if we ignore it. It will erupt. It will affect us. The land is holding trauma. And it'll take courage to deal with it. And there are courageous people who are ready to lead the way. Yellowstone is technically America's very first national park. And for decades, the story we told about its formation went something like this. If I had come out here in 1807, I might have found it myself. But John Colder saw it first. He came out here all by himself looking for beaver. He saw the gray mud bubbling and the steam hissing out of the rocks and went back all excited and told the folks... This is a park ad from the 1950s. It was all here, only more so. And boy, does it sound 1950s. was made into the first national park called Yellowstone. Dedicated and set apart as a pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people. That ad pretty much follows the same script as most other stories about our park's founding. There was this beautiful place that no one knew about. But then, a white guy with a science bucket discovered it. And now, because of American ingenuity, the rest of the world can visit and enjoy it. There's a lot of myth-making in America. And the creation of of America and the parks is all of that myth-making. You've heard from Tom Rogers before, last episode. But if you're just randomly skipping around, which you shouldn't, he's an activist for Native American issues and a Blackfeet Nation member. An abortion of truth and justice is how those parks were created. And that story needs to be told because this country is a country of stories. From our founding fathers to... Sacagawea, to the Mayflower, to Manifest Destiny, to the Doctrine of Discovery. Remember how when I came to this country, I didn't learn anything about the national parks? Well, if you're like me, here's a story we missed out on hearing. Before Yellowstone National Park became Yellowstone National Park, it was home to many different Native American tribes. Archaeologists have unearthed evidence that indigenous people inhabited the land as far back as 11,000 years ago. Just visualize that. 
before the pyramids of Giza, before Babylon ever existed. These various tribes had their own names for the region, like Land of the Burning Ground and Many Smoke. And they had their own ways of interacting with the land. Tom descends from one of those tribes, the Blackfeet. At one time, the Blackfeet had dominion over 28 million acres, from Alberta to Manitoba to Saskatchewan to Wyoming to Montana to Idaho and into the Dakotas. We never sought to master the land. We never sought to partition it up. We never sought dominion over it. We existed with it. We didn't seek to dominate the grizzly or the wolf. We didn't feel the need to kill them. It was such a utilitarian European view. Let me master the environment. Let me control it. And anything like some weird apex predator that gets in my way, I will kill. When white settlers move into the Yellowstone region, they're like, this is our land now. We want it. So naturally, they clash with the indigenous groups who've been here for like thousands of years. On every side of what became Yellowstone Park and on it, there was war. You've also heard from David Troyer before. He's a writer and academic of Ojibwe heritage. Because these white settlers keep clashing with indigenous tribes, the U.S. government is like, we have to stop the fighting. And to stop the fighting, they officially acknowledge that the region belongs to the local indigenous groups. And they don't just do this once. They do it twice. They sign a treaty in 1851 and another in 1868. But these treaties are basically meaningless. In every corner of this country, the United States government has broken what it refers to in its own founding documents as the supreme law of the land, which are treaties, has broken those treaties over and over and over again. So the fighting doesn't stop. And then in 1872, just four years after America tells tribes, yes, this land is yours, our government creates Yellowstone National Park on that land. Creating, you know, Yellowstone National Park during the Plains Wars is like pausing mid-murder to plant a tree in someone's backyard. I think the metaphor that you would use is you're at home, you're living a good life in your beautiful home with your parents and your brothers and sisters and perhaps your cousins, and then you're told to leave. Leave your home. Someone else is coming, and they're going to take your home. And every once in a while, when you live in another place that has much more poverty, there's nothing like where you used to live, perhaps you can walk by. And if you're lucky and fortunate and no one sees you, perhaps press your nose against the window pane and see those people who took your home, took your memories, and took your happiness. And that is Native Americans. And then they moved us to their islands of poverty. And they named land that they stole from us, that they erased us from. Once the government forces Native people onto reservations, and they have control of the land, they do things like killing off the wolves, giving places in the park white names. Basically, like, who cares about the Native names that existed here before? 
They name monuments like Hayden Valley after a geologist. And not just any geologist. A geologist who validated the fucked up way in which we treated the natives. And Mount Doan, which they named after a racist army leader who helped massacre a band of Blackfeet people. They killed over 200 women and children. And were instructed by a man, a Lieutenant Doan, use the pickaxes on them. Women and children. And the really horrible thing is that it was a band of Blackfeet that the U.S. government had promised to protect. They'd said, we got you. Do your thing. So the people were unprepared to fight back. A lot of them were suffering from smallpox, and the men who weren't sick had gone off to hunt. And then the U.S. Army comes in and massacres whoever they can find. And Doan brags about it. He's really proud of himself. And now to this day, he has a monument in Yellowstone Park named after him. And we've had to fight to rename it. We had to fight citizens of Wyoming, Park County, Wyoming, the Park Service, a monument named after a mass murderer. Change, I realize, in this country moves slowly. Crisis gives it a little bit more impetus. But we move very slowly in this country because people are very reluctant to change their ways. For so long, we have not been able to tell our story. That story needs to be told to our children. I did not learn that lesson in school. But I think that America needs to see with new eyes and be truly educated and informed of what their ancestors did. But I never want to have history imprison you, and I mean this. You should have it inform you. How do we do that? How do we recognize that we're settlers learn about genocide, the murder of innocent women and children, and not let it paralyze us. Anger and disappoint us to the point of not wanting to be a part of any of this at all. How do we own our history? How do we help the people we condemn to reservations and poverty? How do we repent and make amends, turn this into a do-over? What does it look like? for history to inform and guide us. How we treat not just Yellowstone, but all of our national parks. Just a little thought experiment I had. The only remedy for the theft of land is land. Period. And so what better way to both acknowledge the past and to make amends? What better way to sort of make justice, this virtue of American democracy, an actually lived ideal, what better way than to return the parks to tribes, all of them, to be controlled and managed by a consortium of all the tribes in the country, managed on behalf and for the benefit of all Americans? What if we managed them and controlled them 
with certain covenants in place, conservation being a key part of that. I think my idea is is a modest one. I don't think it's a big idea. Someone actually said to me in an interview, they're like, well, this is a pretty radical, pretty big idea. I'm like, you know what's a pretty radical idea? Is to keep enabling theft. What's radical is not to give parks back to their original and rightful owners to manage for everybody. That's not radical. What's radical is to steal them and to pretend like you didn't and to then mismanage them into the ground. That's radical. My idea is pretty sensible in comparison to that. But ideas like David's, they're rarely popular. You know, if we look at slavery, it's more recent than the Native American genocide. But the idea of reparations, that's not popular. And not just reparations. So many Americans freak out at the idea of teaching kids about racism, our country's racism, critical race theory in school. The 14th Amendment passed more than 150 years ago. And America as a country still hasn't given Black people the full rights that we promised. They are still fighting, waiting for things to change. And you know, the history of our country is undeniably dark, painful, fucked up. But America is really good at telling a story. Telling the story of how we strive to be a more perfect union. The story of how we once enslaved Black people and then elected a Black man as president. The story of how we destroyed this land with the Industrial Revolution. And now we're saving it with blue recycling bins and green jobs. But the stories we tell ourselves must include the fact that we've done real harm. That there are stories and lands and people we've attempted to erase. There are people who are waiting on us. Our apologies our amends. There's this idea in America that we are the one country where change actually happens. That there are things to be hopeful for, but that they come about slowly, that we must wait. But there's a difference between patience and inaction. There's a difference between wanting a more perfect union and having the courage to create it. And maybe I'm naive in even believing this, but I believe we can. I mean, I come from a country that's lived under a military rule for more than half of the time it's existed, where there is talk of democracy, but never a free or fair election. So I believe in an America that has courage, that can at least build the courage to tell a truer story of how it was created. A National Park Service that acknowledges the sacrifices, the erasure, the genocide that led to America's best idea. And I believe that the story isn't over, that we get to decide how it ends. So yes, there is a lot we haven't done, but I do believe in the hype of hope. The more perfect union being something that we are working towards. Not the government, 
us, the people. A more perfect union where we protect our Native histories, where we change the names of monuments honoring racists, where we return the parks we stole to the Natives. Or at least, where the next time we go to a national park, we do it with open eyes. If I could ask anything of you in your journeys to these beautiful parks, if you have a moment to take somebody aside and just be at one person, one person can make a difference and tell them how this all started and tell them how it can be healed. Tell the story and then ask them to tell somebody else. Hello Nature from REI Co-op Studios is brought to you by Subaru. It's produced by Dustlight Productions. I'm your host and executive producer, Misha Youssef. Our executive editor is Arwen Nix. Jonathan Shiflett is the senior producer. Elizabeth Nakano is the producer. Francesca Diaz is assistant producer. Ariana Garbley provided additional production help. This episode was written by Elizabeth Nakano and me. It was sound designed by Elizabeth Nakano. Valentino Rivera is the senior engineer. Carly Bond is the composer. Elizabeth Goodspeed is our art director and designer and did our artwork for the series. The illustrations on the artwork are by Joshua Ariza. Special thanks to Rachel Garcia, our development and operations coordinator at Dustlight, and apprentice Matthew Lai. From REI Co-op Studios, executive producers are Chelsea Davis, Joe Crosby, and Paolo Matola. Kirsa Berg is the podcast production intern. <laughs>